science has shaped just about everything around us. And though they've been in the minority, Australian women have long been involved in science as researchers, in the lab as, as teachers, and at the forefront of science-based social reform. There are myriad reasons why women have been less represented in the fields of science and research, and many of them historically have been structural. And their stories have also been largely missing from history books until now. Dr. Jane Carey is a senior lecturer in history at the University of Wollongong, and she's written a book about these trailblazing scientists. It's called Taking to the Field, A History of Australian Women in Science. Jane Carey, welcome to Life Matters. Thank you for having me. When did you first notice this absence of women in the Australian scientific record? Well, when I first uh, started studying this topic, there were no women in the history books, um, uh, the histories of Australian science. There were no women in them at all. And that uh, led me to assume that there weren't actually very many women um, who engaged in science. But when I started to do the research in detail, I found an astounding wealth of women. It just took me totally by surprise. And you point out in the book that we have this rich history of women in science, and you say that you're astounded. This goes back to the 19th century. Why is it that we've not heard of most of these women and you yourself assume that they weren't there? Yes, well... um so histories of science tend to only focus on the people who reached the very top of the profession and most women didn't get to that sort of level. So that means that they're just absent from most of these histories. But if you look just below that top level, you find women everywhere. And in fact, up to the end of the Second World War, women in fact made up 30 to 40% of all science graduates from Australian universities. And they were absolutely fundamentally involved in the formation of um, modern science in Australia. Well, Jane Carey, you've really surprised me with that statistic. I wasn't expecting it to be so high, but that is quite a large proportion. Uh, How did you end up finding out about them if they'd been written out of history so effectively? Well, that's the historian's job, isn't it, to (laughs) uncover these things. Um, But yes, certainly, um, actually, the the first thing I did was actually look at the graduating lists, the class lists that are published, were published in the newspapers. And they listed them by degrees. And I could see, I I started counting them. I counted the women. um, And when I finished counting, I came up with this number. And it was just, it just blew me away. And from there, I I had names and I, I could trace Um, more at the individual stories and also wider kind of trends of um, how women became involved in science. Fascinating detective work there. One of the biggest barriers that women face was something called the marriage bar. Can you explain what that is? Yes. So the marriage bar was a legal requirement that women had to resign from their jobs when they got married. And so this was enforced in all of the um, most of the public um, service kind of areas, and it wasn't fully fully abolished until 1966. And in other areas of employment, although it wasn't necessarily a legally binding sort of um, thing, it was an expectation, a strong expectation that women would uh, retire when they got married. Retire. What an interesting word to use. Um, what yes. was the justification used for the marriage bar? Well, there was a, a the main one really was that it was assumed that women would um, women's job then was being a wife and then a mother that would naturally follow and that you couldn't in, in it was 
assumed in those times you couldn't do both jobs. The other was also around this kind of family wage, the idea of the male being the breadwinner, and also that if the woman also worked, that wasn't fair. That was doing a man out of a job. So, yes. yes. <laughs> okay. Very, very interesting. Just shows how far we've come in time. Um, it's quite interesting, Jane Carey, because you said you uncovered uh, a large proportion of female graduates and then the marriage bar comes along. And I imagine that would have a big impact on the women who wanted to pursue a career in science uh, uh, beyond that. So did you see some kind of drop off? Yes, absolutely. So, um, so some women, um, so particularly in, um, so in universities, uh, some women, um, uh, most almost all women were unmarried. Though I should actually point out, just because they're unmarried doesn't necessarily mean they're single. Um, so that's that's one thing to note. Um, yes, but. The, the, um, the main area this uh, really impacted on women in science was in the um, CSIRO. And so there are a number of women in that institution who hid their marriages so that they, they wouldn't lose their job. Um, most ended up having to re- retire when they became pregnant or had their first child. It was a bit harder to hide that. Um, but there's also, you know, it, it, it's really hard to overstate the extent of the impact of the marriage bar on women's prospects in science and in most other professions and lots of other areas of work. And the most tragic example of the impact of um, the marriage bar was um, uh, Mary Fuller, who was a scientist at at CSIRO in the 1930s. Um, She did some really groundbreaking research in the field that's called carrion ecology, um, which became foundational for a very important branch of um, forensic science. and she committed suicide in 1938, soon after the birth of her first child, in part because she was um, fearful about losing her job. And the coroner found that that fear had contributed to her suicide. That is absolutely tragic. Jane yeah. Carey, I want to come back to something that you said before that intrigued me. Not married, but not single. What, yes. what did that look like back in the day then for women like this? Well, some, some women obviously had um, female partners um, and they, they were you know, um, set out households together. That um, I've only uncovered a few uh, definite cases where I know that that happened, but that that was probably reasonably reasonably common. Um, and others would have um, had relationships with men. They just wouldn't. They just didn't get married. Mm. So you're identifying this huge structural barrier that prevented women from reaching the top of their field. How did that barrier and therefore, I suppose, the attrition, the loss of women from, uh, you know, high level scientific roles, how did that impact attitudes uh, when it came to women in science then? Yes. So it's interesting. There's a, there's a bit of a shift over, over time in, in relation to this. For the early women science graduates before World War II, a very large proportion of them, 50%, stayed unmarried and worked throughout their lives. So there was um, a kind of, an ex- a sort of acceptance of that sort of single woman scientist um, to a certain level, um, not to the very heights of the profession, um, but that really shifts after World War II. So after World War II, the, the, there's a marriage boom. Before the baby boom, there's a marriage boom. Mm-hmm. And so after World War II, lots more women get married and that, um, you see a precipitous kind of decline in uh, women's representation in scientific um, professions after World War II. Um, it's really quite extraordinary. 
Jane Carey, let's hear about some of these notable women in science that you document in your book. It, it is fascinating to see the different fields they were engaged in. I understand post-colonization Australia's interest in sheep was helped along by Helen Newton-Turner's decades-long work. Uh, yes, absolutely. Helen uh, Newton-Turner was um, also a CSIRO. Uh, she actually began her um, career as a clerical officer there um, and then um, did uh, her degree part-time um, and eventually um, rose to the ranks of senior principal research scientist in the Division of, of Animal Genetics. And her work had a major, major impact on Australia's wool industry. So it was hugely um, valued because it was economically important. Um, she had a worldwide reputation in this field of, um, kind of applied and genetics um, and yeah she's absolutely um, was a, a role model and an absolute uh, just a global phenomenon really but it's not really a simple matter of celebrating all of these unsung women because some of them were engaged in research that we would now find abhorrent for example someone named Marion Piddington and what talk a little bit about Marion and the ideology that underpinned her work yeah, so Marion Piddington, um, she wasn't a scientist, or we wouldn't consider her a scientist today, I guess, but she was heavily involved in science-based social reform efforts, and she was particularly inspired by the science of eugenics at this time. And so she uh, promoted um, the idea of breeding better humans through a variety of, of, of means, mm. Um and in, so in 1916, when she first kind of publicly comes out with this interest, she publishes uh, this book called Via Nuova or Science and Maternity. And this is a, a short um, fictional account of what she called a celibate mother and her child. And in this book, what she's advocating for is that um, women who are left without husbands after World War One, because so many men have been killed, should be allowed to have children via artificial insemination. Um, and this is a, obviously um, she's seen as a quite um, crazy, she's, she's labelled as crazy for, for this scheme, but it's um, a, a program where women uh, who are of good stock would get sperm from men who are also of good stock and breed um, the best kinds of humans, the best kinds of Australians for the next generation. Indeed, that's, I'm sure, tying into many attitudes and uh, you know uh, thoughts at yeah. the time that, that we have discounted now. This also played into her own unusual motherhood choice, didn't it? Uh, yes, yes, that's right. So um, she, yes, she, um, she only had one child um, and she raised him in uh, very particular kinds of ways. Um, she didn't let him have pockets in his trousers because um, she thought pockets in boy, young boys led to masturbation. Right. Okay. Well, yes. Uh, yeah, we don't think of that as science any, anymore these no. days, Jane Carey. Let's uh, uh, talk a little bit about what happened to a woman named Georgina King. Uh, her work was seemingly claimed by men who took credit for her work. What happened there? Yeah, so Georgina King was what um, we would call an amateur scientist. Um, before uh, there were university degrees in science, um, lots of people participated in scientific kind of activities as amateurs, that's men and women. So Georgina King was one of these amateur scientists, um, she, particularly in geology, that was her, her key field of interest. 
um, and she wrote, uh, she corresponded with lots of the prominent uh, scientists of the day. She wrote some papers um, and she claimed that um, that the leading geologists, including uh, professors of geology at Sydney University, stole her discoveries, that she had corresponded with them, uh, told them what she had found, and they claimed these discoveries for themselves. It's actually very difficult to prove definitively what happened there. The correspondence, unfortunately, has been lost. But certainly it's it's entirely possible that this is this was the case. And again, she was labelled as a mad woman um, because she went um, she published uh, articles in the Sydney Morning Herald making these accusations against these professors. Um, she wrote to uh, the council and um, other prominent members of Sydney University uh, trying to get um, uh, get recognition for her own discoveries, and um, she got nowhere and. The, the men just kind of turned their backs on her and, and called her a crazy woman. Jane Carey, this is such an interesting field of research. I'm wondering, as we leave you here, how you hope your book will be received and, and how you hope people will reevaluate the history of scientific research in Australia? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I hope that um, people will come away with an understanding that the past is a, is a complex place and that... The, the, the surprise I felt at discovering all of these women scientists is, is something I really want to convey that we just assume today that because things are still seen as very difficult for women in science, that they must have been much, much worse in the past. And that's not actually the case. And that the specific issues facing women scientists today have emerged over time they're not ahistorical. They haven't just always been there. And that there are specific structural problems that still need to be addressed within the scientific profession and the institutions of science if women are really going to fully participate and achieve um, to their fullest potential. Dr Jane Carey, thank you so much for talking to Life Matters today. Jane Carey is a senior lecturer in history at the University of Wollongong. Her new book is called Taking to the Field, A History of Australian Women in Science. ABC RN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.